0: this week of something that I know to be true in my own life and that I find to be true as I talk to other people. I was reminded of the fact that to the degree of which you understand the love of God for you is the degree to which you will be able to love others well and live for Him. To the degree that you understand, as a Christian, you understand the love of God for you is to the degree of which you will be able to love others well and live for God. Now, I would add to that, to the degree that you understand your own sinfulness is to the degree that the love of God for you just blows you away. And so you need to keep those three things in mind. You keep in mind the degree of your sinfulness, like just be mindful of, Your sinful condition, and in light of that, be mindful of the great degree of which God has loved you and overcome your sin. And then, when you are really resting in that, you see the degree of your sinfulness, you see the degree of God's love for you. That frees you then to live the way that God calls you to live and love people the way He calls you to love people because. If you're, if, if you're at all thinking of and mindful of how difficult it is to live in relationships with other people, how difficult it is to live in this world, you find the commands of Jesus to do the things that he commands us to do very difficult. I don't want to do what you call me to do. I don't want to be merciful to that person. I don't want to forgive that person for what it is that they have done for me, to me, I don't want to be patient anymore. I want justice to come now. I'm tired of waiting. I mean, we struggle with all of these things. And I'm telling you, to the degree of which you understand what God has done for you in Christ is to the degree which you will be able to respond rightly to all of these things. Now, the reason why I mentioned this this morning is because this is what it is that we've seen in the book of Romans. This is what's been highlighted. The righteous character, right? Like the perfect, righteous, majestic, loving, gracious, holy, just character of God. Perfect in every way. Inscrutable, right? Like if he's inscrutable, it means that you cannot scrutinize God's ways and to be able to find fault. He, there's no fault. He, he's perfect all the time in everything he does. So that aspect of God has been put on display, but the, the contrast to that has been the sinfulness of man. That's been put on display as well, and you see these two things contrasted with one another, and there's this, there's this unbridgeable chasm between sinful man and righteous God. And we know that Christ came and he, he brought reconciliation between God and man together but we need to think about what it is that he, we actually have in Christ so that we can live out the way that he calls us to live. Paul's continuing through here, not just Paul, right? We know God, he's the author of Scripture. God is continuing to repeat to us and remind us of these deep, wonderful doctrinal truths that the believer is to rest in and to embrace and enjoy so that when we get to the application portion of Romans in chapter 12 onward, man, we're geared, we're ready, we're equipped to do the difficult things. So when he says in Romans 12, don't take vengeance into your own hand, leave it to the Lord, he's got it all covered, you can go, you know what, I can do that. Because of everything that I've learned about God already and how well I'm able to rest in him and trust in him for what it is that he's done and how, how amazingly kind he's been to me. Essentially, Romans 1 through 11 sets us up to do Romans 12 through 16. But it is important for us to think along the way as we're learning these doctrinal truths. We're not just gonna wait till we get to chapter 12 and go, okay, then how do I apply this to my life and live it out? I hope that we're thinking about it the whole way. You're thinking about what it is that you have in Christ for you today so that you can respond rightly to the difficulties and the trials and the temptations that you are facing today. Don't wait till we get to 12 to start to work on your issues, okay? Start to deal with them now because of what it is that we have in Christ. And we want to be able to continue to dive into that and rest and rejoice in what it is that God has done for us and how that actually helps us grow in practical holiness and godliness. So Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, is where we're going to be this morning. Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to look at a few things that we notice in the the text in particular. So Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, this is the reading of God's Word. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So he's, he's continuing on with the conversation of what it is that he, we, where we ended last week. The blessing that we have... In righteousness. Last week we saw this relationship, as we've seen already in Romans, continue to be developed. The relationship between faith, righteousness, and justification. And for the believer, we, we have all three. True saving faith is accompanied with a righteousness and a justification by faith. And then he talked about last week what that really looks like in verses 7 and 8. Lawless deeds are forgiven, your sins are covered, and the Lord doesn't count your sin against you. I mean, this is what it is that we have as being justified people. Your sins are washed clean. Whatever it is that you did this morning, whatever it is that you did yesterday, whatever it is that you did earlier this week, if you are in Christ, you can be assured of this, the slate has been wiped clean. I mean, if you're anything like me, you feel like God must constantly be going like this all day long, wiping it away, wiping it away, because, I don't, because this is what it is that I have in Christ. This is the position, this is the blessing, this is the, the privilege that we have. And so Paul opens up the, this, our passage this morning, well then who is this blessing actually for? Because this sounds really good. This blessing is really, really great. But who is it actually applied to? Well, as we consider this this morning, we want to consider three things in particular. We're talking this morning about true blessedness. What is true blessedness? We talked about it last week. To really be blessed is to have your sins forgiven, your, your sins not countered against you, your sins covered. And the first thing that we consider this morning regarding true blessedness is our blessed reality. If you're a note taker, the first point that we're looking at this morning is the blessed reality that we have. Again, you've got to grasp this. We really need to embrace the reality that we have in our relationship with God through Christ. Understand the blessed reality. Picking up where he left off last week, who is this blessing for? What is this blessing? He says in verse nine, is this blessing then only for those circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is this blessing of the forgiveness of sin, is it only for the Jew, the circumcised people? Or is it for the Gentile too, the uncircumcised? Who exactly is this blessing for? And again, if you, you think back and to what it is, one of the things that I mentioned last week is that the Jews were of the mindset that they were blessed, just by virtue of being Jewish. They were blessed, they had all the bases covered. They went through circumcision, they went through the the sacrificial law, they did these things, but at the end of the day, they were God's people, blessed. The uncircumcised people, the Gentile, those people are not blessed. Those are the pagans, those are the idolaters. So who exactly is this blessing for, Paul? Are you telling us that the pagan, the uncircumcised person, is actually blessed in the same way that the Jew is? Well, he's going to say yes, but I think he's going to say even more so because of what true circumcision really is in circumcision of the heart. The outward act of circumcision as we see in this chapter this morning in just a little bit was just an outward sign and a seal of an inward reality. But we talk about this reality of us being blessed. He makes this statement in verse 9, right? So the question is, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. and He makes this statement. This is what we say. We're saying that faith was countered to Abraham as righteousness. This is, he, this is what he says. This is what he preached. This is what he proclaimed. Where Paul, wherever Paul went, this was not just, like if, if you're reading through the New Testament, you're gonna see very clearly, especially if you're reading through the book of Acts, that this just not was like, this wasn't a saying or a slogan or a mantra. This was the way that Paul lived. Like his living and what he said was the point of his life actually were one and the same. And for us as believers, it should, it, w- it should be the same for us too. Like we should be seeing inconsistencies in our life between what it is that we say and the statements, the declared statements, the truth statements of Scripture, and the way that we actually live our lives every day. There should be some cohesion. There should be some unity in these things. He says... This is what we declare. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Again, the Jews believe that Abraham was inherently righteous. And this is why God came to him. This is is one of the obstacles that Paul is overcoming here. And the statement that he makes first before he gets into some of the other aspects here is that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And what Abraham had was indeed a true righteousness righteousness. Not of his own doing, not of his own earning, his own meriting, but by God's gracious gift given to him by faith. And we've seen already back in earlier in uh, chapter 3, verse 24, that people are justified by God's grace as a gift. Faith and belief in this passage, is directly opposed to any sort of works. So belief and faith are not a work. They are a gift that God gives to the person. And Abraham has this faith, and in that faith, he has a righteousness. There is a holiness. There is a purity about Abraham. Again, not because of who he is, not because of what it is that he has done, but simply because this is what God declared and gave to him. I mean, think of the timeline again of Abraham's life and the events. Genesis chapter 11, he is an idolater. He's worshiping other pagan gods and idols. God comes to him, speaks to him, preaches the gospel to him, and from then on he believes. He's believing, not perfectly, but God is the one who initiates this. God is the one who confers and gives the blessing, the promise. And Abraham's just walking by faith. And his faith, the gift that God provides to him, actually provides a righteousness that is imputed to him, credited to him. As if he were perfect and righteous and holy in and of himself, that's how God sees him. That's how God sees us. Faith with it comes with a righteousness that is foreign to us, given to us from Christ. His purity, his holiness, given to us. Faith as the instrument provides this. Faith is the instrument that God uses to provide righteousness, to provide justification, to provide forgiveness. Of sin for us. This is a spiritual reality that the believer has, but it works itself out and applies itself out by real practical holiness. When I see the righteousness of Christ that I've been given to me, and I'm well aware that I'm not righteous and that's not mine and I don't deserve it, well, then that humbles me and it wells up within me this incredible heart of of gratitude and thanks. And that makes me then want to be holy and do the things that he wants me to do and calls me to do because of his gracious gift to me. And again, we're reminded that it is a blessing. It is called a blessing, and therefore it is a gift that God gives to us. The blessing that Abraham has is a gift that is given to him. D.A. Carson says, faith is passive our acting in faith ultimately is a being acted upon by God. Our initial act of faith, every continual act of faith, is actually being done and carried out because we are first being acted upon by God to do so. I can imagine Paul in this part And I kind of wonder, I always, as I read through the Bible, I I kind of wonder, you know, what the tone is, where things are written or spoken. I wonder if, like, in a section like this, if, you know, Paul does one of these things where he lowers his glasses and he looks at his fellow Jews and goes, did we really think it was about us? Did we really think it was about us at the end of the day? Who is this blessing, this forgiveness of sin and righteousness really for? Who does God come to and treat this way? The one who has faith. And in order to prove to them that Abraham's righteousness was gifted by faith, he begins to get them to think through, again, this timeline of events. And so the first point that we see is that we have this blessed reality that we have by our position in Christ. Secondly, we see that we have a blessed reminder in verses 10 and 11. We have a blessed reminder as well. Abraham was counted, faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Well then, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And the answer to this question is huge to the audience that that he's speaking with, then the answer would have blown them away. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He did not have righteousness because he was circumcised. He was circumcised because he was already righteous in the eyes of God. He didn't do anything to earn it. It was a gift given to him by God, and a sign of circumcision was given to him as a reminder of God's righteous, gracious, electing love that had been already displayed and proven in his life. Again, we think about the timeline of Abraham's events. Genesis chapter 12, God sovereignly calls him, preaches the gospel to him. Genesis 15 His belief is credited to him as righteousness, and God creates a covenant with him. And then in Genesis 17 is where we see this circumcision ceremony take place. He's already heard the gospel preached to him by God. He's already been declared righteous because of his faith. And now he has this circumcision ceremony as a reminder to him. Not of his goodness, not of his faithfulness, but of God's goodness and God's faithfulness to him. I mean, keep in mind what it is that happens in Genesis 17. A few things for us to remember. He still hasn't had a child. And God's promise to him was, you will have an offspring. He's 99 years old I had a baby at 42, 41. Some people in this church a baby older than that. They were older when they had their uh, a child recently. 99. Abraham's 99. <laughs> it's wild. Why? His wife Sarah, she's barren. How many years they've been together trying to have a baby? Can't. She's barren. God will not open the womb. Not only that, but his own wife says, I have this maidservant. Why don't you lay with her and have a child? Directly not trusting God and disobedience to him. And so he has Ishmael with Hagar. Physically unable to have a child spiritually had been disobedient to the Lord. And yet that's exactly the context which God comes to him again. Genesis chapter 17. If you want to turn there. This is the context of which God comes to him. Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai walk before me and be blameless that i may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly then abram fell on his face and god said to him behold my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations no longer shall your name be called abram but your name shall be called abraham for i have made you the father of a multitude of nations, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And he goes on from there. The point being this. Abram is 99. Sarah is barren. They've been disobedient to the Lord. And this is when God comes to him and reiterates his promises to them. I will surely do this. I'm faithful. Brothers and sisters, never, never allow your circumstances in life to dictate to you what it is that God is able to do. He's faithful. He will bring about what it is that he promised. It may not be the way that we want, it may not be the way that we were hoping or the way that we thought, but all of their promises have their yes and their amen in Christ Jesus for us. Know what his promises are. Verse 11 tells us back in Romans chapter four, what it was that was happening. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteous, righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The circumcision, I mean, he's already addressed this. We already, he already addressed what true circumcision was Earlier in chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, that true circumcision is circumcision of the heart. When someone has their heart circumcised by the Spirit of God, that's when a person is born again. That's when a person becomes a Christian. That's when you get saved. That's when you receive Christ. You know all the different ways we talk about. Someone becoming a believer. That's when your heart is circumcised. The guilt, the penalty for sin has been cut off and removed. And that person is the true Jew. That's what he said in chapter 2. So he's already addressed circumcision in a spiritual means regarding it creating a spiritual people of God, which we'll get to here in just a few moments in Romans 4. But the question then comes up as to what about the physical act of circumcision? Why did Abram do it? And he says here, this is why, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith before he was circumcised. He was already walking in faith relationship with God, and he receives, this is huge, he received this. It's not like Abram went to God and said, God, what, what, what is it that I can do in order to show you and prove to you that I love you and that you are my God? I know, I'll circumcise myself. That'll really prove to you how serious I am about my relationship with you. This was God's doing. It was his enactment. He came to him. And, and, and Abraham received circumcision as a gift He receives it as a gift. As a sign and a seal. A sign being the mark of confirmation and authenticity. He receives circumcision as a mark of confirmation. Not to receive righteousness but because he was already righteous. And he received it as a seal. A seal is a Proof attesting to legitimacy. It's like you've probably heard the example before when um, a wax seal has an impression put upon it, and that impression signifies the legitimacy of that, whatever that thing is sealing, whether it's a, a, a letter or something like that. It was authenticating legitimacy and ownership. He receives circumcision as the mark of confirmation, proof attesting to the legitimacy of the righteousness that he had by faith before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a confirmed proof that he was righteous by faith, and it served as a wonderful reminder to him how good God had been to him what it is that he had done and what God had promised to him and what God was still doing. Keep in mind, when he was circumcised, he hadn't received all of the things that God had promised yet. He hadn't even had his child. But he received the sign of circumcision as a wonderful reminder that God is faithful in who God is, what it is that God is doing. I think, you know, what's so amazing about this for us is that, you know, we live in a society where what's normal for us is that we show proof of something that we have earned. Your driver's license, it's proof that you have earned it. Your diploma, if you have one, it's proof that you've worked hard and earned it. If you played any sports or if you're still doing sports and you're still into collecting trophies, it's proof, right, that you've earned it. What's so amazing about this, Abraham's righteousness, is that what he has is proof of something he didn't earn. Every time he was reminded of his circumcision, every time that they practiced circumcision, it was a reminder of what it is. That God had done for him and how gracious and merciful God had been to him and calling him out. He was wandering about, worshiping idols, doing his thing, living his life. And God sovereignly speaks to him and calls him and says, you are mine. And this is what I'm going to do for you in your life. And his story is no different than any of ours if we are in Christ. You were doing your thing. You were living your life, and God came to you and spoke to you and pulled you out and declared promises to you that he absolutely intends on fulfilling. And we have this wonderful reminder. Now we don't have marks on our body to remind us of this thing like Abraham does. We don't look on, to the marks on our body. We look to the marks on the body of another. Every day, we should be reminded of what it is, the, the very same things that Jesus said to doubting Thomas. Put your finger here and feel my hands, and put your hand here at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe. Every single day, we should be, as it were, putting our hands out and feeling his wrists. Putting your hand out and feel his pierced side. And be reminded of the marks that he bore for you to assure to you that you are God's adopted child. And he intends on being with you for all eternity. Every time you thumb through the scriptures. Every time you open up your Bible. Every time you read through it. Do so as if you are feeling the wounds and the marks of the one that bore your sin and iniquity to make you his. Be reminded of what it is that Christ has done. Put your hand out. Be reminded of his nail-pierced hands his spear-pierced side. Look at the marks that he bore and be reminded of the righteousness that you have and look to the one whose righteousness you have. It's his. Brothers and sisters, we have given to us the righteousness of Christ and that's what is required, nothing less You need the righteousness of Christ. Your righteousness will not cut it. It will not provide the covering and the shelter that you need on Judgment Day. And the righteous, and kids in here, the righteousness of your parents will not cover you on Judgment Day. You need the righteousness of Christ. That is the only thing. That will make it so that things go well for you on Judgment Day. And this is what it is that we have, and this is what it is that we remember. We have this wonderful reminder of what it is that Christ has done. And this is the reason why the believer, why why the New Testament believer celebrates two things one every week in the Lord's Supper, this is a sign. This is a reminder to us of where our righteousness comes from. Number two is baptism. That's a sign and a reminder of the seal that we have via the Holy Spirit and being adopted and and belonging to Him. How often do you think about the day that you were baptized? I think it's a wonderful thing to to remember and to think about. The public proclamation that I have died with Christ and I now live to him. Not by anything that I've done, but by his gracious gift of salvation given to me. That's the reason why we we do communion every week. We need the reminder, we forget, We have to have the reminder given to us every week. The sign and the seal that we have in Christ and the righteousness that he provides to us. Thirdly, we have our blessed representative. We have the reality, our blessed reality. Second, we have our blessed reminder. And thirdly, we have our blessed representative In Abraham, blessedness as seen in Abraham and how he was blessed, all of those who walk in faith and have the faith that Abraham had are blessed in the same way. And the point that he is making here at the end of the second half of chapter, excuse me, verse 11 and verse 12, is to remind us of the simple fact that there is one people of God and that they are a people of faith. The purpose was to make him the father. Two times he calls Abraham the father. In verse 11 and verse 12, the purpose, the, the purpose of the sign and the seal of circumcision that reminded Abraham of his righteousness, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Gentiles so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised the Jew who are not merely circumcised but who walk also who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised he's pressing the point here which he will make abundantly clear in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3. The dividing wall of hostility between man and God and between man and man has been raised to the ground in Christ. There is one people of God. And if you have, the fa- if you have saving faith, Abraham is your father, so to speak. He is our representative. We Everything, the righteousness that he had via faith, we have righteousness by faith. This whole, this whole dichotomy between there being two groups of God's people, Paul is continuing to press the point of saying there is one people of God and Abraham is the father of the Gentile and the Jew. And the only requirement that is necessary to be in that family, faith. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish, you're German, you're Japanese, if you have faith, Like Abraham, you're in Christ. doesn't matter if you're from Panama or Peru. If you have faith, you're in Christ. We have one, there is one people of God marked by God's electing faith in grace given to us. This is how God sees things. He sees things as spiritual truths in realities, There's no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He sees things in spiritual terms. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 8. I want us to see that this is the way that God sees things. This is the way that Jesus spoke. What God is concerned with is the reality of, of faith, the righteousness that his children have by faith, as Abraham had a righteousness by faith. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 39, Jesus has this dialogue with the Jews. Remember, this is before Paul's time. Paul's continuing to build upon what Jesus already did and said. Speaking with the Jews, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Right? This is the issue. He's our father. This is what Paul is overcoming. Jesus said to them, "If you were Abraham's children, if Abraham was your father, you would not you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your you were doing the works your father did." They said to him, We were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. No, Abraham's not only Abraham, God. He's our father. Little do they know who they're speaking to. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. I came from God, and I am. Every time you see it, Jesus use the term I am, circle that and think about back to Exodus. I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Why can't they understand what Jesus is saying? The spiritual language he's using. Why can't they understand it? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus sees things in spiritual truths and realities. He's not looking on the outside. He's looking on the inside. They don't have Abraham as their father because they don't walk in the footsteps of faith that Abraham did. They don't have a righteousness by faith like Abraham had. Abraham is our representative indeed if we have the same faith and a righteousness by that faith that Abraham had. Now, I want to say that there are two things here as we begin to move towards the communion table that I want us to think about. Number one, he says in verse 12, make him the father of the circumcised, who, is not, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith. This is one of the things that Jesus indicted the Jews on. Father Abraham is not your father because you are doing things he did not do. True and saving faith is always walked out and lived out to some degree. True and saving faith, if you have a righteousness, a true righteousness in Christ, if you're saved, you were saved and given that righteousness by faith, and that faith continues to apply itself in your life today. I hope you guys were paying attention, those of you who were at Sunday school, those three verses that we, we were able to read through at the end, and the marks of standing, standing firm, enduring, saving faith, true faith, bears those marks. Walking according to the faith, it cannot just be intellectual assent. It cannot just be verbal assent. It proves itself in the way that we live our lives. Right. This is what Paul said earlier in chapter one, verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. Secondly, I want to say this: if we this is this is a most wonderful passage to encourage us in our assurance of faith, to, to encourage you of the assurance that you have in Christ. If you have saving faith, you have the righteousness of Christ, you are forgiven, and it is wiped clean. Your forgiveness is not measured by your love for God, your obedience to God and the strength of your faith. Your forgiveness is not measured by the degree of which you love God, by the degree in which you are obedient to God, to the degree of which, uh, the, the strength of your faith. Those are products. That's what faith produces. That's the fruit. The root of saving faith is God's declaration that it is so for you in Christ. And we got to get that straight because so many people, how do I know if I'm really saved? How do They live in this state of not being assured of their salvation because they're measuring their salvation by their own works and their own goodness. And how much do I love God? And how much do I obey God? And how strong is my faith? That breeds despair, that breeds confusion, because you're never strong enough. You never love God enough. You're never obedient enough. You're always going to feel like you're not good enough, and you're always going to wonder, are these promises really for me, and does God really love me as he says he loves me in the word? Those things come but you're saved by God's declaration of his love for you in your life. And His giving of a righteousness to you and his reception of you and pulling you into his kingdom and adopting you and making you his own and him declaring it thus to be so. So you get firm on that. You get firm on that. Then you will find yourself freed to do the things that God calls you to do and to want to live the way that he wants you to live. And that brings me back to where I began. To the degree of which you understand the love of God for you and how blessed you are in Christ is to the degree of which you will be able to do the things he calls you to do and to do them well. This is the time where we're going to partake of communion together. The elements are on the tables in the back. The cracker as it represents the body of Christ. The juice as it represents the blood of Christ. We partake of this as a sign and a reminder of what it is that Christ has done for us and what we have in him. And we use this as a time for rejoicing, worship, worship we use it also as a time of examination and confession and assurance of his pardon for us. So the elements are on the back tables. You can get those and return back to your seat for a time of prayer and meditation and we'll partake of them together here shortly.